Revelation chapter 18, starting in verse 1. John writes, After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped uh, are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality with her and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore, cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses, and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls, for in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And all the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all those, all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning, What city was like this great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city, when all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more, and a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. 
and the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more, and, and the light of the lamp will shine in you no more, and the voice of the bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery, and in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all those who have been slain on earth. Well, last Sunday, if you were here, we looked at chapter 17 of Revelation in some detail. Uh, we saw that in a lot of ways, we're in a, a very large section of the book that deals with the, with the fall of, of Babylon, chapter 17 and chapter 18 that we're looking at this morning. Even part of the very next chapter is still dealing with that great uh, subject. Now, Scholars and commentators are divided on many of the details of these chapters as to what they mean, what these things are, are, are aiming at and are about. And so even as I was reading it, maybe you were listening and reading along and thinking, I have no idea what this is about. Is about. And so if it's understandable, I think, if we find ourselves, even after a lot of study, having some difficulty understanding what some of these details of, the, of these chapters mean. Uh, but while we might still have difficulty with some of the details of these things, we might have some difficulty understanding what they mean and what these visions in these chapters are meant to teach us. And uh, I think the very fact that so much of the book of Revelation is dealing with this one subject tells us it must be awfully important. There must be a reason that God gave us in this book in general, but also these chapters of the book that spend so much time, even if it's on a difficult subject, they spend so much time on this particular theme and subject. It must be very much worthy of our time and attention. And so we're going to give it some time and attention this morning in addition to last Sunday that we already did with the previous chapter. And so, you know, the, the scripture says in 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 that God gave us all of scripture for a reason. It's all given by inspiration of God and it's profitable for us. And so... Well, what I'd like to do this morning is we're not going to have time to unpack every detail of a chapter like this, uh, but what we're going to try to do is, is take a look and have an eye for the big picture of the chapter. What's the main, what are the main points and main emphases of this chapter, and what are the applications for us? You know, very often when you read uh, some of the prophetic books in the Bible in the Old Testament as well as this book, Revelation, sometimes it can be difficult for us to discern, you know, what is this supposed to mean to us? Like, how are we supposed to live differently in light of of this book? How does it apply to us? There's at least a couple ways that I think we're going to see from this chapter that the chapter tells us, you know, right there in black and white, in some ways, how, how it applies to us as well. So we're going to look at this, the big picture of the chapter, and hopefully uh, God will use it for our edification and growth uh, in grace. We saw last week, I, I, I don't want to try to re, rerun the whole thing so to catch everybody up, but uh, to give you the, the short, the Reader's Digest version of last week, uh, we saw that in chapter 17, and this carries on into this chapter, that Babylon in this chapter, uh, primarily the first thing that it was about, the, the main thing that it referred to was the, the fall of Jerusalem. In, in many ways, A.D. 70 is all through your New Testament, uh, and that's uh, when we, we talked about Babylon last week in this chapter, there may be application for other cultures and places in this world uh, that that foster unbelief and foster false religion and and worldliness. And these the lessons of this chapter and the, and the previous chapter apply to those as well. But the first and foremost, what it was about was the fall of Jerusalem 
by the Romans in A.D. 70, when the temple was razed to the ground and the city was destroyed and burned with fire. This was, this was telling God's people there ahead of time what was going to happen. It was warning them, in some ways, we're going to see to flee the city to get out before it came uh, to pass. Now, many scholars in our day, uh, they hold to the, a, what we call a late date of the book, if you've ever read like a New Testament introduction, or if you read, if you study Bible and you read the notes, sometimes at the beginning of the of the book it'll say something like the date and occasion of the book. And maybe you've read those notes and thought, why do I have to know that? Why why does it matter what year Paul wrote, for instance, Galatians? Well, of all the books in your New Testament, the the date of the writing of Revelation is more significant than probably any other book in the New Testament. Because where you put the writing of the book affects, has to affect how you view what its contents are. There's no really, there's no real way to get around it. And so some scholars, many scholars in our day, believing scholars, good solid men, uh, they hold that this book was written around AD 95. So John would have been very old, uh, and this would have been during the reign of the emperor, Roman emperor Domitian, under whose reign there was quite a bit of persecution of Christians. Um, but others hold to a, an earlier date, somewhere in the mid-60s A.D., you know, in the middle of probably Caesar Nero's reign in Rome. If you know anything about Nero, uh, he also persecuted the church of Jesus Christ and uh, killed many, many uh, believers and many preachers of the gospel. Um, and I think the visions in this chapter and in the previous chapter in Revelation uh, likely point us to the earlier date of the writing of this book, the external evidence for the late date, for any date of the book, are, it's not very convincing. There's not much to tell us from outside of Scripture when this book was written. There's like one quote from an early church father that suggests it was during Domitian's reign, and that's really it. And a lot of people have kind of latched onto that and said, well, that, that settles it. I don't think it settles it. I think the internal evidence of the book suggests an earlier date. And so I think with that earlier date in mind, the visions in these chapters more than likely point uh, to the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the temple itself as what's being held here in, in view. Uh, last week we looked at Matthew 24, verses 1 to 2. If you remember in the, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount of Olives, he actually predicted the fall of Jerusalem in that, in that sermon, Matthew 24, 1 to 2. It says, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. One of the one of the other parallel passages in the Gospels makes it more along the lines of they were so impressed they were going to look at these buildings, and what did Jesus say? He said, "Truly I say to you," oh, he said, "Sorry," he said, but he answered them, "You see all these, do you not? Now look at all these buildings. You see all these buildings. Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down." You imagine probably could have heard a pin drop when he said that. All these great, magnificent, remember, how long did it take, they call it Herod's temple, how long did it take to build that version of the temple? 46 years. And it was all going to, I mean, how, how ornate must this building, this structure have been? How impressive must it have been? And Jesus said it's going to be destroyed and torn down in such a way that there won't be, we would say, not one brick upon another. It'll be totally razed to the ground. Well, whatever one's view of the date of the book of Revelation and whether or not these chapters point to God's temporal judgment upon unbelieving Israel, 
for her persecution of the early Christians. I think there's a lot of application for us either way. Whatever your view of these chapters are or is, uh, there is still application to be found in this text for us, and I think that's what we're going to try to focus on this morning. We're going to look at three things, Lord willing, from our text, which are a part of, I think, the big picture of the text. Uh, the first one is uh, we're going to look at the declaration or the prophecy of Babylon's fall. That's a lot of what this chapter deals with, is a declaration of what's going to happen, a prophecy of Babylon's fall. That's found in verses 1 through 4 and also scattered throughout the chapter. The second thing we're going to see is the chapter points to us, you know, clearly two points of, of application for us as Christians. Uh, it, it applied to the early Christians in one way, but it also applies to us as well. And the first of those points of application is found in verse 4, where John hears a voice sent from heaven. And what does it say? It says, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Now, what were John's original readers, the first people that read the book of Revelation in the first century, what were they being told to do here? That's what we're going to look at, uh, Lord willing, this morning. And, and how does that same lesson apply to us today in our own circumstances, which many Christians live in places throughout this world where there is a lot of persecution? This may apply to them in similar ways as well. The second point of application is found down in verse 20. In verse 20 and following where John writes there, the voice from heaven says, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. This judgment, as horrific as it was, as as frightening and awe-inspiring as it was, was given for their benefit in some way. And so he tells them what? Rejoice, be in awe over it. Be shocked about it, but rejoice over it. And so the two applications are that we're going to look at this morning. In some sense, believers in Christ are called to come out of Babylon, to not share in her sins and her judgments, and to rejoice over her destruction as a just judgment of God for their sakes. And really what I think one of the lessons that we should learn from this and from other things in Scripture that are similar to this is that this is a picture of the of the risen and ascended Christ not just gathering his church, but it's him rising up to defend his church. That's, I think, the message of the whole book of Revelation in some ways, is that Jesus is not sitting idly by in heaven watching all these awful things unfold. He's watching. Just like God in, in Exodus 3 tells Moses, I have heard, I have seen, and I'm going to come down and do something about it. That's Revelation. That's a lot of a lot of your Bible is is the Lord's is the Lord taking care of His people with a mighty hand, and that's what we're going to see in this chapter uh, as well. It's it's Jesus Christ rising up to defend His church against His enemies and our own, and that should be a cause for rejoicing. That should be a cause for praise. So the first thing we're going to see in our chapter here this morning is the declaration of of Babylon's fall, the prophecy of Babylon's fall. In verses one through three, look there. John writes. He says, after this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a, a, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. 
and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Now, one thing to notice there is the repetition of the word unclean. It's, it's giving a picture of, of, of the sin, of the immorality that's involved uh, in, in Babylon. Everything seems to be unclean, all kinds of unclean spirits and birds and, and unclean beasts. Uh, and notice one thing else. Notice the description of the angel that brings the message in the first place. It says the angel, this angel that, that brought John this message, had great authority. And look at, look at verse 1 there. And it says the earth, the earth was made bright with his glory. It's kind of hard as you're reading a text like this to kind of picture it in your head. I mean, it's like it lit the whole planet up. This angel came down and the, everything that John could see, the whole place was lit up with the glory of this angel. Now, some might uh, think this could be a, a picture of, of Christ himself. Uh, others, I think, at the bare minimum, what is it doing? It's a reflection of the glory of God. This angel came from heaven to bring a message to, to John and to us, and his glory that he reflected from God was so bright, it must have been an impressive sight. Not only the, the angel's voice got John's attention, said crying out, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, but his very appearance, as if being an angel wasn't enough, this angel lit the whole place up when he came uh, to preach this message to John and to us. So this, this would have been quite a sight for John to behold, and John does his best to describe it for us here in the text. Now, as is the case with a lot of what you read throughout the book of Revelation, the wording and the imagery of this vision find their root in the Old Testament, especially in the books uh, we call the major prophets in the Old Testament. So when you read in verse 2, when it says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, uh, if, you're, if you're very familiar with your Old Testament, that might ring a bell. It should probably ring a bell. Like, I know I've read that somewhere uh, before. It's, it's a repetition of what we saw in Revelation 14.8. It's the same exact phrase, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And both those places are basically quoting Isaiah 21, verse 9. Isaiah 21, verse 9 prophesied of the destruction of the original earthly Babylon. And it said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. Now, the fall of Babylon had every bit as much to do with, with Babylon's harsh treatment of the people of Israel and Judah as it did her idolatry and her false religion. You know, when, when God judged Egypt and Pharaoh and his armies, he was doing two things at least. One is the thing we, we normally would think about most because it, we, we identify with it. It was God rescuing his people from slavery, redeeming them from slavery in Egypt. It's a picture of God rescuing us from slavery to sin through Jesus Christ. But the second thing he was doing, and it's evident in all ten plagues, I won't go into it, but God was judging their false gods and their idols. Most of those plagues had something to do with the false religion that was worshipped and practiced in the land of Egypt. The, the river, the sun, they worshipped the sun. Well, God turned the whole place black. All, they were all his rebukes and judgments upon their false gods. Well, in the same way, what does he say about Babylon? Fallen, fallen is Babylon, Isaiah 21, 9. And all the carved images of her gods, he has what? Shattered to the ground. It's God's way of saying, no, my glory I will not share with carved images. His glory he will not share with another. So Isaiah 21 is a part of the background of the chapter we're reading. And also Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, which is a very long book in your Old Testament. 
And in, in the final three chapters of that book, Jeremiah 50 through 52, what do those chapters deal with? Those chapters deal with, at great length, the fall of Babylon and the fall of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians when he took when they took the people of Judah into captivity in, in around 586 B.C. These things were prophesied and warned of. The prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they told the people, they warned them, they warned them to repent, and they told them, this judgment's coming, this chastisement from God is coming for your sin and unbelief. But at the same time, God also prophesied in, I think, a comforting way that Babylon was not going to just get off scot-free. God was going to eventually judge them as well, and so very much of those three chapters in Jeremiah's prophecy deal with the fall of Babylon itself. Now, the people of Judah and Jerusalem, if you know your Old Testament history, they were about to go into captivity in Babylon around 586. And at that time, God spoke through Jeremiah and he told ahead of time of the destruction of Babylon. Now, why would God do that? When you read, if you read Jeremiah, maybe this afternoon, you'll go home and read those last few chapters. Or read the whole book if you can, but the last few chapters. Why does God spend so much time t- telling them about his future judgment upon earthly Babylon? I think it was to comfort his people. A trial was coming, but it didn't mean that God was done with them. It didn't mean that God was just going to let it go and that this wicked nation of Babylon was going to get off scot-free. This God was going to judge them too. And if you read the chapters, God tells him very particularly why he judged Babylon. In addition to their idolatry, he, he judged them for the evil they had done to Zion, that's Jerusalem, and also the, the evil they had done to the temple. They destroyed the temple too. This thing in AD 70 wasn't the first time the temple had been destroyed. And so God used them for his purpose in chastising his people, but he also judged them for what they did I think a similar thing is going on here in our text, in these chapters in Revelation that we might find so difficult to understand. Um, the destruction of one of the chief enemies of God's church in John's day is what's being foretold. And the reason it's being foretold is to comfort and strengthen his people. Uh, you know, I say this probably, I feel like I say this every time we go through this book, but Revelation is written to comfort suffering Christians. That is the main point of the book. It is not written to scare you if you're a Christian. If you're reading it and it's scaring you, and you're a believer in Christ and you are forgiven of all your sins in Christ, if you're being frightened by the book, you're reading it incorrectly. It's written to comfort Christians, especially the suffering and persecuted church, which still goes on in this world today. There's a lot of comfort for for God's people in this book if we read it correctly. Now, you might know earlier in, in the book, uh, there was a, a, a vision in Revelation 6 of the martyred saints in chapter 6. They were praying to God. They were, they were pictured as being under, under the altar. It says in Revelation 6, 9 through 11, it says, When he opened the fifth seal, that's Christ is opening these seven seals on the scroll of God's will. It says, When he opened the fifth seal, I, that's John, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. So these are martyrs, right? And it says, They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign God, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? They're crying out, How long? How long are you going to let this go? And they're asking for God. They didn't take vengeance on their own. They asked God 
uh, for his justice and his vengeance for their for their martyrdom. And it says, Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Notice God's answer there. Does, does God tell them, as so many today would say, Oh, you got the wrong idea. You know I don't do that anymore. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I used to be a really mean God of vengeance in the Old Testament, but now the New Testament, I'm just a nice old you know, grandfatherly God, and I don't do anything like that. He doesn't say that at all. He says, rest a little bit longer. What's the implication? He's going to answer them in due time. It's not time yet. In fact, what does he say? He says, uh, wait, rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. It's kind of like it's going to get a little bit worse before it gets better. And, and But he's going to act. He's not going to let it go. There was a number that God had set, that God had ordained to come to pass of those who were going to be martyred for the faith, for his glory, and he would answer in judgment after that. These martyrs who were slain for the sake of the word of God and their testimony to the gospel of Christ are pictured here crying out to God to judge and to avenge the shedding of their blood, and they're told to wait, to rest a little bit longer. And so what that means is God's just judgment might seem to tarry long. It might seem to be taking a lot longer than we might think and that they might have thought, but it wasn't going to last much longer, this delay. Revelation 18, I think what we're seeing here is God's answer to the prayers of the saints, the martyrs, back in chapter 6. Rest a little bit longer, and here it is in chapter 17, and 18. Remember last, last week, if you were here, we looked at Revelation 17. And in verse 6 there, it describes, remember, it pictures Babylon as a woman. And we, we use that kind of imagery. People call ships, she, you know, we, 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 uh, we call our nation sometimes by a female, you know, pronoun. Uh, we call her or she, that kind of a thing. Um, and it, it describes Babylon as a woman who was, quote, drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So whoever Babylon is, it is a place, a people, uh, a group that was persecuting Christians violently even to the death. That's what's, what's going on here. And so this passage in the book of Revelation in general, I think, are one of the applications that may not be to us individually, uh, but I think chapters and books like this should serve as a warning to all the earthly enemies of Jesus Christ and his cross and his church. You know, earthly governments and nations and worldly rulers and followers of false religion, those who do harm the apple of God's eye, even his bride, the church, they do so at their own peril. It doesn't look like it at the present time to them, but it will. You know, a risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ, he still, he still judges earthly nations and wicked rulers in this life as well as in the next. He's still defending his church. It may not look like it because it doesn't always happen on our schedule. We think it should happen sooner and it doesn't, but he still does judge. His just judgment might seem to tarry a long time, but it is sure to happen, it is sure to come to pass. And the prayers of God's persecuted church will be answered. I think that's, that's the encouragement in this chapter for the suffering church. And that brings us to the two points of application found in our chapter this morning. The first one is of this twofold application is in verse 4 where he says that he heard this other voice from heaven saying, Come out from her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share 
in her plagues. And so what's the first application? It, it, we may have to figure out how it applies to us, but he says, come out of her. Come out from among her. You know, it's get out while you still can, is the message to God's people here, especially in the first century when John first wrote this book. That's the, the first point of application. Judgment upon Babylon was coming, and God's people were being warned to flee before it came to pass. It almost sounds too simple because of the, because of the way it's written, but it's really what he is saying. Now, think about this. Remember, remember your Old Testament. Always kind of keep the Old Testament open in your, in your minds at least or in your, in your Bibles as we're going through this. But the very same application was made to God's people before the original Babylon fell. In Jeremiah's day, in the midst of his prophecy of Babylon's coming destruction at the hands of the Medo-Persian Empire, Jeremiah 50 verse 8 says this. It says it more than once. It says, flee, flee, same word, flee from the midst of Babylon and go out of the land of the Chaldeans and be as a male goat before the flock. In other words, that may sound like a strange imagery for us to think about the male goat part, but he's saying, get out. Get out while you can. Flee from the midst of Babylon. The very next chapter, Jeremiah 51, verse 6, says it again. Flee from the midst of Babylon. Let everyone save his life. Be not cut off in her punishment, for this is the time of the Lord's vengeance, the repayment he is rendering her. One of the applications for God's people, for the people of Judah in Babylon before her fall was to get out. God tells them at least twice that they have to get out because judgment was coming. That's the same message we're finding here in this vision, these, these symbols and signs in Revelation chapter 18. Now think about this. Jesus gave a similar warning in the Olivet Discourse, didn't he? Maybe you've read, I, I remember for years I would read that chapter, Matthew 24, and it made no sense to me until these things were explained by someone with a better understanding of these things. In, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus also tells people to flee. Matthew 24, verses 15 to 20, in the Olivet Discourse, he says, Jesus says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, and he, he adds, let the reader understand, something John sometimes says, right? Then let those who are in Judea, very particular geographic location Jesus is talking about, let those who are in Judea do what? Flee to the mountains. Same message, get out. Same kind of thing. Flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight, there's fleeing again, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Right there in black and white. This is coming. You need to get out. When you see the sign of it, of it coming to pass, Get out of, get out of Jerusalem. They were to flee Jerusalem. They were, and they were to do it. Think about the way he describes it. What does that remind you of from your Old Testament? Maybe a number of things. I think of Sodom and Gomorrah. What does God tell, uh, Lot and his wife to do? He doesn't just say get out. He says don't even look back. Get out and run for your lives as fast as you can. Don't even stop. Don't turn around to watch. Don't look. That's how fast they had to flee and get out. According to some commentators, many Christians did in fact flee Jerusalem before its fall because they took Jesus' words seriously. And kind of ironically enough, if you read the book of Acts, many of them fled persecution before that happened. 
How, what's one of the ways the gospel spread in the book of Acts? It's a, it's a remarkable testimony to God's sovereign grace and his overruling all the events of history for his own purposes. The persecution itself drove Christians all over the world from Jerusalem. They, they, they left for their, fled for their lives. And what happened when they fled for their lives? The gospel went with them. And the gospel was spread. You know, it's like Satan was stirring up persecution to stamp out the church and stamp out the gospel. And what happened? God used him to spread it. Same thing happens here. Well, Jesus warned many of them to flee, and many of them did. Now, what about us? We don't live in Jerusalem. We don't live in earthly Babylon. What's the application for us in this text? I think there is application for us in the text. It might, might not be the same as theirs, although think about this. If you were to, could you apply this to, a, to, a, to Christians in a place in the world right now where there is violent persecution? I think you could. Not everybody can get out of where they are. Not everybody should get out of where they are, but when they when they see God's judgment coming upon a place, should they leave? I think they should. I think that's one of the applications uh, of this text. I've read even this past week that there are many Christians fleeing China right now. The government is 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 cracking down on the church. They're de- demolishing, bulldozing church buildings. They are they are resisting the church in every way they possibly can, and and putting them under their thumb. And so many of them are fleeing to places like Taiwan. You know, right across, right across the border, um, that's not a good sign for China, I, I don't think. Uh, although in some ways it may be. God may be at work in there. I, I've read other places that the church there uh, is, is growing by leaps and bounds. Persecution doesn't stop the gospel. It tends to, you know, it tends to make the church grow. Well, there's another application for us that's built on the same premise in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses uh, 14, all the way through the first verse of chapter 7, 2 Corinthians 6.14 to 7.1, the Apostle Paul quotes Isaiah 52 about the same things, kind of things going on that we see in our text. And this is what he writes. He writes, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols, then he adds, for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, and he quotes Isaiah 50, uh, 52, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. That's God talking. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Here it is. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And then Paul says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us do what? Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Think about that. Paul, as he always seems to do in his writings, he bases and and founds his teachings his gospel teachings on Old Testament passages. Even some passages that we might think, how would we apply that? He, he takes Isaiah 52, which we've already looked at in, in some ways uh, in the, the parallels to our text uh, in the book of Isaiah, and he says, guess what? There is a coming out from their midst and a being separate from them that applies to us as well. And notice what he says there in that last verse. He says, since we have these promises, beloved. What promises? 
When God says in Isaiah 52, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God. They should be my people. If they touch no unclean thing, he will welcome us. He'll be a father to us. We shall be his sons and daughters. Those promises spoken to Israel and Judah back in Isaiah's day, they apply to you and me today. Paul says, since we have these promises... When you look at the Old Testament scriptures, when you see God promising things throughout the, the scriptures to his people, those promises apply to us as well. God has one people from the Old Testament to the, to the day when Christ comes back uh, for us. He has one people called out by his grace, and all those promises apply to us as well. And so th- there's a going out from their midst that does not involve a change of location at all. What does Paul say? It consists in walking in holiness before God in the fear of God. It's an ethical coming out from among her. That's, that is always the command to God's people to walk in the fear of God in holiness. And what did Jesus say in his great high priestly prayer in John chapter 17? John 17 verses 15 through 17. Jesus, praying for us, praying for his people, praying for his church. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, that's you and me. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. The primary thing isn't the location at all. Jesus says, I'm I'm, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. We might have preferred that he had, but he didn't. What was his main concern? Not where we live, but how we live. And he prayed that God would, his father would keep us from the evil one, because we're not of the world. And then he says, he prays, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, whenever I think about that passage now, answer me this. You don't have to answer out loud. You know, sometimes we tell each other, you know, I'm praying for you. And I hope that we actually do that and don't just say it like, how are you? I'm fine. Oh, I'm praying for you. We forget to pray. I don't know about you, but, you know, maybe when I tell you I'm praying for you, you think, well, God might answer pastor's prayer. I don't know. Pastor's a little, you know, wonky. Jesus, when he prays, does God ever not, does the Father never fail to answer Christ's prayers? Does Jesus, of anyone else, does Jesus always pray according to the will of God, his Father? Yes, he does. And so when Jesus prays for us and says, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth, he's praying that God might sanctify his people. What does that tell us about our sanctification? We are, if you're in Christ, you are going to be sanctified. God is going to sanctify you by his truth, by his word. It's one of the reasons we preach and teach the word of God as much as best we can every Lord's Day and every time we get together as his people. But that's, that's Christ's prayer that we might be sanctified, that we might walk in holiness of life, having our minds renewed and our lives transformed to the glory of God, as Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Now, there's another application here, and I have to say, if, if you're not yet a believer, and I don't know, you know, we, we pastors don't have x-ray specs, we can't tell who's what, we don't know, well, all we can do is say they profess faith, but if you're not a Christian this morning, if you're not a believer in Christ, if you are still in your sins and under the wrath of God, I think this vision of Babylon's fall in Revelation 17 and 18 is really also a warning to you to flee the wrath to come. One of the messages is that God will judge. And his earthly judgments are warning shots, so to speak, of his final judgment. And so these things warn you to flee the wrath to come by faith in Christ. If you've ever read John Bunyan's book, The Pilgrim's Progress, one of the most uh, well 
documented popular books ever written in Christianity. That book, if you've never read it, it's an allegory of sorts of the Christian life and of the gospel of Christ. And in that, in that book, Bunyan, the writer, pictures the pilgrim as the main character. His, it pictures his salvation initially as fleeing from the city of destruction. I won't, I'll just paraphrase it for the sake of time, but he's at his house and an evangelist comes and tells him that there's, there's a judgment coming. And he tells him to flee for his life. Get out of the city while you can. And what does he do? He does just like Lot did. He ran for the hills. His family refused to go with him, didn't stop him. He just went. And of course he gets, he gets saved in this, this allegory, this story that's a picture of the Christian faith and life. But the first thing he's told is to flee the city of destruction. And that's what he did. And that's what this text, I think, is warning us, anyone here who is not a Christian this morning, to do, to flee Flee God's wrath to come. Turn from your sin and unbelief and turn to Jesus Christ by faith alone for salvation and he will accept you and justify you and make you one of his own. Well, there's a second point of application in verses 20 through 24 of the text. The first one is to come out of her. The second one is to rejoice over her. Look at verses, look at verse 24. He says, rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets. Why? For God has given judgment for you against her. Now this might be maybe the more difficult of the two applications for us to grasp and to come to grips with, but we are to rejoice at God's just judgments. We are to rejoice at God's, at Christ's just judgments in this world as well as the final judgment at the end of the age. Now this, that probably sounds kind of harsh. Maybe you're sitting here listening, you're thinking, boy, that sounds really harsh, that sounds really uh, negative, it sounds uh, like an awful thing. It probably sounds very harsh to our ears, but I'll say this, if we were suffering violent persecution at the hands of the wicked, uh, it would be music to our ears. We would be rejoicing, and no one would have to tell us to rejoice over it. You know, if you've, if you've been reading the news and keeping up with some things that have been going on, and we don't hear the half of it, I'm sure, but even in the past couple of weeks, I've read of, of the story of Muslims slaughtering Christians by the dozens in Nigeria. They are just going in and murdering people for professing faith in Christ, not for anything wrong they've done, just for being Christians, for being baptized, for following Christ, and they are slaughtering them by the dozens. Think of our brothers and sisters in Christ, our family in Christ, who suffer immense persecution in places like China, as we've already said, places like North Korea. If you think about it, practically any place on this earth where communism has taken hold in government or false religion has taken hold in a society, those things have often led, not just in ancient history, but in our day as well, they've often led to the violent persecution of God's people. It's almost a given when those things happen that that will follow. And so when Christ judges on behalf of his church and answers her prayers for deliverance, we should all rejoice. If it was us, we would rejoice. If we knew that kind of suffering and persecution, we would have no problem reading this chapter and rejoicing at the end, as we're being told to do. Now in the chapter, I haven't gone through it much in the sermon, but in the chapter, the worldly, what do they do? What's the worldly person's response to God's coming judgment on Babylon in the chapter? It says it over and over in the chapter, weeping and mourning, the opposite of rejoicing. God's people rejoice, the wicked weep and mourn and wail over these things. 
It says the kings of the earth, verse 9, the merchants of the earth, verse 11, and the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all those whose trade is on the sea, verse 17. All of them, the phrase is almost verbatim over and over in the text, will do one thing or two things, weep and mourn. This is clearly not the judgment at the end of the age. They won't be around to weep and mourn. They'll be weeping and mourning their own their own judgment. This is an earthly, temporal judgment upon a place, and the people that made their living off those places, off that place, are going to be weeping and mourning over the sudden fall of the place symbolically called Babylon here in our text. To them, it's all going to be calamity. And why is that? Because all they care about is power and business and wealth. And what do they lose at Babylon's destruction? Power and business and wealth. That's all they cared about. They didn't say, oh, I feel bad for these people. They said, oh, I'm not going to make my money anymore. I used to make a lot of money at that place. Now it's gone. That's all they cared about. That's all they mourned about. But for God's people, it was going to be a matter of great rejoicing and praise. Now, I have to say this. If you think about these things, I, I say this from time to time. Does God change? No. God does not change. And because he doesn't change, his people, us, are not consumed. His, his faithfulness, because of his faithfulness, his mercies are new every morning. But does, did God judge nations in the Old Testament? Yes. Does God still judge wicked nations now? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. And I, I have to say, as for our own nation's sins, sins like perversion and abortion that are so rampant in our country, in verse 5 he talked about the sins of Babylon being heaped high as heaven. What is 60 million killed, murdered babies in our country in the last 40 or so years must look like to God? What does the Bible say? Is God mocked? He will not be mocked if you will reap what you sow. And so one of the things I think we need to do is pray for our country. Pray for our brothers and sisters in other places that are persecuted in other lands, but pray for our own country that God might have mercy and heal our land by granting repentance. You know, if you if you pay attention to politics much, nothing wrong with politics, something wrong with politicians maybe, but politics are fine. You know, you, you would get the impression from some that if we just had the right people in office, everything would be great. Now, I pray for good people to be in office. I hope you do too as well. It matters. But what our country needs, what this, what this land needs more than anything else is revival. Not just politics, nothing wrong with politics. It has its place. What this country needs is revival. I hope that you pray for that revival. I hope that our churches in our country stop teaching foolishness, stop teaching and, and using entertainment instead of worship, and stop, stop teaching people pittances and start teaching people the whole counsel of God. That's what we need. We need God to have mercy upon our land. Not only that, but we should pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who live and serve the Lord Jesus in places of great danger and persecution. We should pray for the work of gospel in those places that it might bear much fruit to the salvation of sinners. We should pray as we're taught in the Lord's Prayer to pray for God's kingdom to come and that his will might be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's kingdom comes throughout the age in this life when God's gospel is spread and the church is built. When we're in heaven on that last day when the Lord Jesus Christ returns in glory to judge the living and the dead, uh, we will all rejoice at his righteous judgment. There will be no, no doubt about that. Why? Because he'll make all things right. You know, what do you, what do you grieve over the most in this life? There's a lot of things, right? 
But one of the things you grieve over, I'm sure, no matter what your political persuasion might be, no matter what all that might be, we grieve over things not being right. We grieve over unjust judgments, things that aren't right. Eat at us. At Christ's judgment on the last day, all things will be made truly right. And if that's not a a cause for rejoicing, I don't know what would be. We will all rejoice at Christ's return, those of us who are in Christ by faith, because he will make all things right and his judgments are all just. To him be all the glory. Amen. Let's, Let's pray.